0: This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis, and it is a tremendous joy to be with you today. Um, I'm back after a five-week sabbatical, and I'm very thankful for the the men who have, have preached over the last six weeks, and really to their families um, who were very gracious to give them the space and time to uh, prepare their sermons. That's not lost on me at all. I'm thankful for you and thankful for a church and a ministry staff that, that sees and understands the benefit of, uh, of me sort of having this annual rhythm uh, for my family and I. Uh, just uh, let you know some a few reasons why. Um, we, we do this annual sabbatical, this rhythm is one, it's just re- a refreshment for me personally. Um, it is, it's a, it's a, a privilege that, that, that's given to my family and I uh, as we don't have the privilege of having certain sacred rhythms uh, as the average family does. Like today we're celebrating 18 years of marriage, my wife and I. Yeah, yeah. it's been a lot easier for me than Jill, I can tell you that. Um, but, uh, you know, leaving the home before anybody is awake on our anniversary, it's not how most people do that. Um, but on Sundays, it's typically how it has to happen. Um, and so be, even being able to ride to church together as a family, the last five weeks has been amazing. It's something, that sacred space. Um, and if you're a parent, and you have kids uh, that are still riding with you, man, it is, it's a privilege. Um, don't overlook that. Um, as messy and as difficult as that may be, don't don't take that time for granted. Um, over this time, I've been away. It has allowed other people here at the Axis to step up, and they've done a phenomenal job. Um, all such weight that they've had to shoulder, uh, logistically even of creating an absence, has been uh, really really helpful. Thank you. But also taking a time away when you're a lead pastor, uh, it just lets me know that I'm not that important, not that big of a deal. It uh, really helps my ego because the church grows when I'm gone, and, uh, and so if you've connected with us while I've been out, it's not because of a personality, but the people in the room and the person that we get to talk about, and that's Jesus, um, and so I'm thrilled that you've connected with us. I look forward to, um, to meeting you. Uh, finally, a personal note on why I do this, and this is sort of heavy. It, it is heavy. There's no sort of, um, is I take uh, sabbaticals because I know a number of pastors who don't, and they're miserable. Um, And I've been at pastors' funerals who have killed themselves, even as a young boy. I remember being with my dad who had lost pastor friends because of never pacing themselves and never wondering about sustainability. And so um, as I've looked into it, the facts are true that pastors who take sabbaticals are less likely to quit the ministry, less likely to leave their churches, and less likely to kill themselves. And so it's personal to me. I've been a part of a lot of that stuff. Um, and so it's uh, sustainability for me. Um, so thanks for letting me um, get deep and real with you here and explaining this. But um, I'm excited to be here. I've thought about like what to do, what to preach uh, on my first Sunday back, um, and I decided to jump into Luke. Okay, so where we left off. Let's pick it back up. Luke chapter 14. Um, and we had these available for several months uh, as we venture through Luke, and um, if you... Uh, here's the criteria, there's three of these uh, left, so it's, it's scripture on one side and um, note taking on the other side. Um, I feel led to give one to Miss Teresa, all right, you've got one, fantastic, okay, so that filling must be for over here, right here, gotcha, who needs one, all right, y'all need one or two, just one, just one. okay, I've got two more, all right, one more, right here, pass that back, Norm. If you don't mind? All right. So, <clears throat> the reason we have journals, we call these field journals, um, and if you want one, we'll get you one. Let me know. All right. But we have spent now 69 weeks um, in the, the book of Luke, um, and we're only in chapter 14 uh, because we're going verse by verse, um, sometimes word by word, thought by thought, and uh, gleaning the truth from it that God will give to us in our setting. And so, we are now 69 weeks in and uh, excited to be digging back into Luke with you. But I want to sort of set some context for us. It's been a while. For some, this is brand new, the very first study in Luke with our church. And so we've entitled this series uh, that is going to be probably three or four years, uh, The Real Jesus. And the reason we're entitled it, we've entitled it The Real Jesus, is because Luke is a historical account, um, a record given to us by a historian who is also a highly educated doctor. Uh, a very respected historian, both within Christianity as well as outside. And he gives us this firsthand glimpse into life with Jesus. And we study that because I'm convinced there's many outside the church that have said no to Jesus, but it's a Jesus that doesn't exist. And I'm terrified that many in this room, of which I was this for, for 28 years of my life, saying yes to a Jesus that doesn't exist. And we can be wrong about keto, We can be wrong about working out, we can be wrong about how to parent, and it's going to be all right. We can't be wrong about Jesus. We have to know that we know the real Jesus, and so this is the heart behind us studying the gospel of Luke, okay? So in particular, all right, Luke 14, digging in past the series talk, into the text, here's what's going on. Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem. And this is his final journey into Jerusalem. And as he goes, he's hitting up a lot of the villages and towns uh, along the way. And he's teaching. uh, He's curing people. He's healing others. The people begin to follow. Crowds are growing. You remember when he actually enters the city of Jerusalem, the mass of people that have palm branches and they're saying, Hosanna. Well, here there's these people that are forming this large crowd that's going to be there eventually to welcome him in for the week of passion. Okay, so many are being changed, many are being saved, but the religious elite, the, the uptight, the, the Pharisees, these religious lawyers, they don't like it. Jesus does not fit at all their understanding of who the Messiah is. They don't, they don't like it. So he's proclaiming to be the Messiah, the fulfiller of the Old Testament uh, covenants, but he's not. he doesn't fit the, the mold that we have in our mind. So he's got to stop. He's leading people astray is their thinking. And yet Jesus spends significant time loving these Pharisees. He spends time, I guess the greatest form of hatred is uh, disinterest and apathy. He's not apathetic or or disinterested in these Pharisees. He teaches the Pharisees as much as he does the disciples in the New Testament, in the Gospels. So he's pleading with them, he's, he's teaching them, and he's here, he, even here he's in the synagogues and now in the ruler of a Pharisee's home, and he's teaching them. Here again, he's in this setting of teaching these religious cats. And in Luke 14, he gives three different parables while he's in this one house of this ruler. And all three are pointing to one end, which is humility. He's pushing them for self-awareness, he's pushing them towards humility, but also something more and even deeper, and you'll see as we get going. But this setting here, it's obviously uh, ancient Middle East, okay? This is a Middle Eastern setting here. You've got this traveling teacher rabbi making his way through a given town. And what happens? A religious, the religious leaders invite them into their home, invite them into their sy- synagogue. And then they ask questions. They put some balls on the tee to try to see what's going to happen here. How's he going to you know, play this game? They investigate his political views. They investigate his theological views. And so this sort of stuff happened all the time. Back in verses 7 to 11, he taught against pride and how you shouldn't assume every time you walk into a room the highest seat of honor. He was pushing them towards a more humble view of themselves. And it culminates in in verse 11 where he says, For everyone who seeks to exalt himself, seek a higher position, lifts himself up, will be humbled. And that word there is humiliated. It is forced humility. All right? It's a force that happens on the outside of us to crush us. All right? So whoever exalts himself up will be humbled, but he who chooses humility, he who inwardly, personally humbles himself, he will be lifted up by God. He'll be exalted by God. He'll be blessed by God. And we see more about this blessing in our text for today. So here we go. Luke 14, building on this concept, Jesus has for us in verse 12. He says to the man who had invited him, remember he was the ruler of the Pharisees, a big deal. Okay, And he knew he was a big deal. Okay, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed, blessed by God. You'll be truly blessed because they cannot repay you for you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, he's not saying don't invite friends and family to your birthday party and make things weird and awkward, okay? What he's doing is he's saying let this be a reality check on the motive why you're inviting certain people into your home certain people to your parties are you doing it in hopes of being invited to them and so it's this you're really not inviting them you're inviting yourself you're doing it to get to theirs all right again pride so jesus is speaking against this pushing us towards humility and he builds on this um this parable uh in in just a moment but this echoes really of something that jesus has taught also in Matthew chapter 6 Remember in Matthew chapter 6, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men um, in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. You basically got it there. And he goes, and even when you give to the needy, again, needy, he's kind of the same as the lame, the blind, the poor, the, the broken, the weary. Uh, when, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you like the hypocrites in the synagogues and in the streets, as they do, uh, they may be praised by others. They've received their award. But when you give to the needy, do not even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's a metaphor for letting your motives be clear and genuine. Let your giving be done in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He will reward you. And this is exactly what Jesus is speaking of here in regards to inviting people into our lives and our homes. Well, in verse 15, one of those who were in the room and reclining at table, eating, eating supper with them, he heard these things, and it didn't hit him the right way. And so he said to him, this is kind of blurting it out here, well, blessed is everyone then who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But I mean, everyone, but not like the poor, not like what you just said, right? Like, so define everyone is really... What's going on here with this statement that comes out of seemingly nowhere. You see, in the context of of Jesus in first century Jerusalem, in this ruler's home, this outburst was a challenge for Jesus. It was, again, setting the ball on the tee, seeing what he was going to do with it. He wanted Jesus to share his particular vision and view on the topic. He wanted clarity in what he meant by poor, lame, you know, uh, blind, like, because he certainly couldn't mean like the the literal needy people and the outcast, those who aren't welcome in the temple, right? Like you can't possibly mean the Gentiles, non-Jews, would be a part of this, right? So they were expecting Jesus to say back to this sort of blurted out statement, Well, let's all work very hard to keep the law with great precision so that at that great day, at the great day of the Lord, we'll be counted worthy to sit with the Messiah and all other true followers at His banquet table, right? Because then that would disqualify all those who are broken, all those who are crippled, all those who are blind, all those who are Gentiles, right? It would If Jesus would just say that, it would bring clarity and make the Pharisees be like, whew, okay, good, we're on the same team, right? Well, typically after this, if he responded in this way, the religious in the room would have nodded in approval and said, fine by me, he's passed that test, next topic, let's see what his views are. But Jesus doesn't answer this way. And this man who blurted out this statement, you can tell he's concerned about the kingdom, right? I mean, you can tell that he wants to be in the kingdom of God. He clearly assumes that he's going to be eating there, probably in context, sitting in a really good seat, right? He's a Pharisee. These Pharisees believed in God. They believed in the great future feast in the new kingdom. Honestly, this man is a lot like many of us here today, interested in religion, enjoying the benefits of religion. I mean, he's certain that he's going to be in the coming kingdom, but he's all wrong. And we know this because of how Jesus replies to him. You see, Jesus knows this man. He understands him. He sees his heart. He sees you. He sees the real you. Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. Jesus can unmask us from our pretending. I mean, this man says something beautiful, yet Jesus warns him and even condemns him. And he essentially says that these religious ones will not be in the kingdom, not in the way that they are anyway, but those who assume that they're not good enough, those who are humble, the weak, the sick, even Gentiles, the outsiders, the kingdom is theirs. We learn this from how Jesus responds. Look in verse 16. Your translation might say and, but the, the correct uh, con- conjunction is but. Right? So it's given in rebuttal. It says, but Jesus said to him, a man once gave a magnificent banquet. This was a marvelous feast. And he invited many people. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. Okay, so Jesus knows these, that these super religious guys don't get it. They don't understand what he meant by poor, crippled, lame, and blind that they're actually going to be at the banquet table. They haven't grasped this yet. And it's true. You can see it all throughout uh, their history. You see in first century, there was uh, the Targum, which is an ancient spiritual book um, of the Jews that's the equivalent to like our living Bible. If you're familiar with the living Bible, maybe like the message sort of like uh, brought down to everyday speech. And then in second century, there was uh, a book put out, uh, the book of Enoch. And then in the Dead, sea, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was found with the Qumran community a book entitled, a scroll, The Messianic Rule. Now, I say all this because each of these speak highly against the Gentiles and the broken people, the poor people being allowed at this banquet that Jesus is speaking of here all of these that i just mentioned all three of these are categorically opposed to what jesus is teaching in this rulers home all of them state that gentiles will certainly not be at the banquet table so this proves they don't understand it because they continue to produce literature to this end in fact the messianic rule states clearly that no one can attend the messianic banquet who quote is smitten in his flesh or paralyzed in his feet or hands or lame or blind or deaf or dumb or smitten in his feet with a visibility blemish, verbatim taken from the messianic rule, ancient text. So clearly these Pharisees, much like they're all throughout history, have misunderstood. They're failing to grasp what Jesus is saying here. They fail to see that, that the kingdom, the banquet, is for those who are poor, crippled, broken, and humble. It's not the proud. It's not for the religious who are altogether lovely in every single possible way. It's not them, but it's for the low. The door to the kingdom is a very low door, and you've got to crawl. You can't strut into the kingdom of God, and this is what Jesus is getting at. So all is ready for this banquet. They've been invited in. And in fact, everybody shows up who is invited, okay, according to this parable. You see, there's, there's two invitations. It's like when you have a party at your house. People don't at random start showing up for dinner, right? Sometimes they do, and it's fun, right? There's always more. But most of the time, when you have multiple people from different homes showing up to your place at a certain time, It's because you invited them to be there at that particular time. They've received an invitation. But then, that evening, as things are ready, saran wrap, lids start coming off, the brisket, you know, the steam from the brisket, vegetarians, the steam from the broccoli, right? (laughs) All this starts (laughs) coming, don't hate me, Um, all this stuff. And then there's another invitation where you say, y'all come and get it, it's ready, right? Right? So there's these, these two invitations. Well, this, this happened in this setting that we're about to read about. So they were invited, and they show up, but right as they're ready to eat, they, get, they give excuses to the host of the banquet of things as ridiculous as, I've got to go wash my car, feed my gerbil, or watch the paint dry. All right? That's the equivalent of, of, of the excuses. Earlier in the day, they were all about this time. But now they're exiting and offering excuses. Well, friends, I want you to understand this. There's a general invitation to Jesus. And there's a general acceptance of Jesus. There's a general liking of Jesus. Where you're simply interested in Christianity, interested maybe in the form of religion and the friends that can be found within the Christian religion. Because there's good people. And so you say yes to that initial invitation, but you haven't said yes to the specific invitation where you have to take up your cross, you have to deny yourself, and you follow Jesus with every single fiber of who you are down to your DNA strands with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There is no Christian who follows Jesus casually. There is not one. There is no such thing. But you might feel there is if you say yes to that first invitation. You show up, you smell the food, you're in the living room. But then when it's time to feast, your taste buds are set on the things of the world and not on the things that he gives to us. The first states your mind's intentions. Yes, I follow Jesus. Yes. But the second invitation and embracing the lifestyle of the true Christian has more to say about your soul's allegiance. Okay? This is part of what Jesus is getting at here. So they make these excuses. Look in verse 18. The first one, he says, I've got got to go. I bought a field and I've got to go see it. Have me excused. Now there's two possibilities here for this guy. Either one, he worships this field. In other words, he no longer owns the land. The land is owning him, and he just wants to go out and look at it because he loves it. He wants to spend every bit of time there, so he's got to go because he loves this land. Or two, and I think the more likely of the two, is he, he bought this land, and he hasn't taken the time to look at it, which is like buying a house before you've ever seen even a picture or MLS listing on the Internet. You just simply blindly buy it, not even knowing anything about the area, neighborhood, home, structure, history, nothing. That's a fool, okay? All right, that's a fool. We know this because if you place yourself back into the first century, Middle East, you would inspect certain things before you bought a given piece of land. You would test the drainage. You would test the quality of the soil. You would see whether it faces the winter sun or not. You would inspect the slopes. You would want to see uh, the fruit trees that are there. If there are fruit trees, what kind of, uh, of, of grasses are, are flourishing there? What's the potential of the land? Is it too rocky and so forth? you wouldn't just buy this so this is clearly an excuse you inspect before you buy and the same thing goes for the oxen he says here in nineteen another one said well I've got to go I bought five oxen I've got to go examine them please have me excused again this is absurd this would not happen this might happen in today's day and age because we're so fast with everything okay but back in first century Middle East this wouldn't happen they would examine them first because you don't buy oxen not knowing if they even pull together, will they even work together? You you need to know if they are going to tire at the same pace or else you're going to be plowing in a circle, right? You're going to have one outworking the other. How old are they? What condition are they in? Have they been cared for? Are they strong? Is there an injury that you need to see? You wouldn't just buy these and then go inspect. This is clearly an excuse. And then another in verse 20, he throws his wife under the bus and he says, I've married a wife and therefore I can't come. He doesn't even ask to be excused. He just says, I'm out. This would have been highly, highly disrespectful. It's disrespectful today when when men throw their wives under the bus for escaping a difficult situation, conversation, or having to cancel plans when it's really your fault. You just embrace it. Make it yours. Don't throw your wife under the bus. Okay? But especially in first century Middle East, this would have been highly disrespectful. And he was married before he showed up. His, like, that doesn't make sense. I just got this wife, like, just now. I haven't met her yet. Like, I doubt that happened. That's clearly an excuse. These are empty excuses. They're shallow excuses. And Jesus is using these vain apologies and these fabricated, paper-thin excuses to show us something. You see, these were meant to insult the host. They were, in context, intended to communicate hatred to the host. And in rejecting this invitation, they're professing their high thoughts of who they are and the low thoughts of who the host is. And these aren't reasonable excuses. These aren't reasonable. They're they're not humble, uh, true limitations. These are the reasons that they're grasping for these ridiculous excuses is because they're convinced that there's something more important. It's honestly, it's a form of worldliness. It's, it's idolatry. They're captivated by the sparkle of this fleeting world, and they've given these things priority over God. Well, is this the current picture of your life? You being governed not by God and His Word, but by this world and its pleasures. I mean, these things are to be enjoyed, but not prioritized over God. We must tell all other things to wait, not God. I mean, Christian obedience and Christian holiness is when we prioritize God and we tell everything else in the world to wait. So ask yourself, what is it that occupies the center of your life? What is it that's in your life that's easiest to cancel all plans for? What are you truly living for? I mean, it's not about their politeness or their rudeness. It's about these guys' rejection of God rejection of the host. We know that it's a metaphor for God, but it's the rejection. And friends, there's no greater insult to God than to refuse the offer of his son given to us. Highly insulted, this servant in verse 21, he comes and he reports these things to the master. And then the master of the house becomes angry, infuriated, beside himself in fury. He's been insulted. That's why. He knows the reasons for these excuses. They're trying to shut the party down. He says, go quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. Now, here's the climax of our story. This is the turning point in our time. The servant knows and the master soon finds out that the invited guest's intent is to humiliate the the host and to stop and shut down this banquet. And so the host becomes angry. But what's he going to do with his anger? Insult and injustice causes great anger. And there's tremendous energy that's produced in every one of us when we see injustice. And one of our current significant issues today is what are we going to do with the energy that's produced by perceived injustice? What do we do when we get angry? What are we going to do when we see things that aren't right? How will we respond when we're hurt, when we're disappointed, when we're heartbroken, when we're frustrated? what's our response is it rage and violence is it public shaming or silence well we'd be wise and we'd be very christian to do as this host does look at that in the text he chooses to convert his anger into grace he channels this anger that he's he's not immune to it he understands jesus understood what it meant to be angry and sin not there's nothing wrong with being angry the wrong comes into play, is when we, is, is how we use that anger. And the host, he channels this anger, he harnesses this anger, and he makes it. He produces something with it. He doesn't destroy with it. He produces a resourceful benefit for others. He doesn't use it to harm or ridicule or hate or or be bitter within. The master of the house uses this energy that's created by this personal injustice, this anger, and it causes him to send his servant out into the streets and to the lanes of the city to bring in the poor the sick. It fuels his desire to bring in the broken, the blind, and the lame all by grace. Now be reminded that the Qumran community decided to never, under any circumstances, allow these sorts of people into the messianic banquet. But the servant does, and Jesus does. As we'll see. And the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done. So there's a time lapse here. Okay? What you've commanded has already been done, and still there's room. So the servant goes, he extends this gracious invitation to the outcasts of the city, but there's still open seats. There's still opportunity. There's availability. All right? There's open spots. And it's like you get a sense in context of this servant is so excited. He's like, Sir, oh, there's still room. There's still empty seats. We still have an opportunity to bring more people in. And the master says to the servant, well, then you go further. It was streets and lanes, right? More beaten path, more brick, paved stone. He's saying, now I want you to go out into the highways and hedges. Go out further. And he uses this word that's different. It's not just invite. Compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, and here he shifts his focus away from the parable to the Pharisees in the room. He says, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Master says, compel the people to come in. Let's fill this place. And this compel, it, it implies that the master knows that these strangers that are going to receive this invitation are going to find it hard to believe. So culturally speaking, when a true outsider, like those listed in the text, blind, lame, so forth, when a true outsider, culturally speaking, first century Jerusalem, when a nobody with no social status to speak of, when he or she is invited to a banquet in the home of a somebody, the nobody finds it really hard to believe that they're really wanted by that somebody. But that's how it is with grace. Grace at first is always unbelievable. It'll always catch you off guard. Grace will always catch you off guard, or it's not grace. Grace. I'm not really wanted. That's impossible. There's been a mistake. I'm not the one who should have received this. I can't possibly show up. I, I know who I am. They know who I am. They probably just want to make a spectacle out of me. Cruelty makes spectacles out of nobodies, but mercy makes trophies out of nobodies. And that's what's happening right here. You see the servant, the messenger, he delivers this invitation. But they're going to have a hard time to believe that they're actually invited. So knowing this, the master says, you know what? They're going to be reluctant at first. But I want you to grab them by the hand. I want you to drag them here if you have to. I want you to, by all means, to convince them that the invitation is an opportunity they can take part in. That this is serious. This isn't a joke And it's meant especially for them. There's no strings attached. It's not a trick. I want them here at this banquet. They're going to have so much fun. I know they're going to feel unworthy. I know they're going to feel like they don't belong. But tell them everything's ready. Don't bring anything. Everything's prepared. Make sure they know that this is for them. Friends and family and guests, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every single one of you have been invited in. You. You, the poor. You, the blinded. You, the ruined by sin and riddled with shame, riddled with guilt. You, who are burdened and scared. Us who have nothing but need. Pathetic with our inability. Inability poor, lame, broken. That's not me. It is you. It is you. And you'll never get to heaven unless you first see yourself this way because only the broken can be restored. Only the blind can have their eyes open. Only the sick can be healed. You've got to see yourself this way. He didn't, Jesus didn't come for those who thought they were good enough. He said he came for those who are sick. Those who think they're sick have no need of a doctor. Jesus said he came to be this physician to us. That's Jesus. May we see ourselves as the sick and the poor. Like Romans 5, 6 and 8 says, for while we were still weak, right, poor, blind, needy, at the right time Christ died for the not godly, not the good you, not the impressive, there is no such thing, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, right? Though perhaps for a good person would would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, his love for us, and that while we were still weak, while we were still sinners, while we were still in our needy state, Christ died for us. He did not die for the righteous. He was the only righteous. He died for the unrighteous. He died for the sinners. This is the, the gospel. You see, the Bible teaches us that our need, our soul, poverty, happened as a result of our sinful rebellion before God. Our sin is what's caused this. It's by our birth and by our choice. And Romans 5.12 speaks to this, as sin coming into the world through one man, Adam, and then the curse comes, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And we don't deserve another chance, and to be quite frank with you, another chance is not going to help us at all. And rather than receiving the judgment and wrath and anger of God towards us because of our sin, God extends grace to us. But His anger remains. His wrath remains. His vengefulness remains. Because He pours it out on His Son instead of us. He doesn't just hold it back. He does something with His anger. He shows us grace and He gives our justice of what we deserve. He pours it out on His Son. His full cup of His foaming wrath was poured out on His Son instead. That word instead is such a powerful, merciful word. Friends, we need love, we need grace, we need mercy, but we don't deserve mercy we don't deserve love we don't deserve grace and yet god sends his son to us to suffer for sinful men and women not good people but sinful people haters of good deniers of god his enemies three phrases all found in your new testament to define who we are outside of His grace and mercy. And yet to us, sinful people, He sends His Son to die for us. And by dying and victoriously beating death, we can now cry out from where we are for mercy and we get it. We cry out from being overwhelmed. We don't have to get our stuff together and then cry out. We cry out from being needy. We cry out from being broken. We cry out from our weakness, our weariness, our giving up, our lost of all hope, our tired of trying, our doubt doubting of God, doubting of ourselves from our crippled state, our poor state, our blind state, from our deaf state, from our dead state dead in our sin and we cry out for mercy and we get it. We cry out for forgiveness and it's ours. We cry out that we want to be loved and we want to be accepted but we're terrified of ever being fully known and Jesus says I got it. I'm going to take care of it. You're fully accepted. You're fully approved because of what I've done for you. We cry out for grace and we receive it This is the gospel. And it's echoed in Psalm 72, and it's true, where He delivers the needy when the needy calls, the poor and him who has no helper. That's us. He has pity by God's good grace and love. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and He saves the lives of the needy. This is the gospel. And now, as recipients of such gracious redemption, personally and eternally, you and I, Christian, are now called to go. Out into the streets and lanes, further to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come into the kingdom of God by trusting and believing Jesus. Friend, all of this was prophesied by Isaiah seven hundred years earlier in Isaiah fifty-six that this very thing would take place, where God would gather the outcast of Israel. Well, what was prophesied by Isaiah was catalyzed by Jesus and can be realized and materialized by us. Pursuing obedience before God and being missionaries to him, whether it be across the street or around the world. You see family the church of God and the kingdom of God is being built and all the world is moving toward a new city all of creation is moving to a perfect city and in this city there will be no tears <laughs> there'll be no shame there will be nothing to be sorry for there'll be no suffering no sadness no death there'll be no brokenness there'll be no racial hostility there'll be no indifference or apathy it will all be beautiful and will be a grand banquet but not all those who will be there have been invited yet we have to go invite them they will not want to miss out on this feast jesus is going to be there jesus the word who became flesh jesus The lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, Jesus is going to be there. The one who took on our poverty so that we can receive his eternal riches, that Jesus is going to be there. But will you? I know you're interested. You're here. You're in a Christian church. Your your, your sheer presence with us today tells me that you're interested. You tell yourself that you're interested by your presence here. But where are you really? I'm not asking if you like church, I'm not asking if you like pastors, I'm not asking if you like fellowship, I'm not asking you if you like sermons. I'm asking you, do you love God, the God of the Bible, the eternal Father of Jesus Christ? Do you love Him with all your heart, your soul, your life, and your strength? Are you humble before Him? What's the state of your heart? He he wants you. He doesn't want your opinions. (laughs) He wants you. He doesn't want your thoughts or your actions or or for you to be polite in how you speak of Him or to Him. He wants you. He wants the throne of your being. He wants your total allegiance, not your lips, not your words. He wants your heart. What about your co-workers? Are they going to be at this banquet? Hey, Dad, Mom, is your son and daughter going to be here? Are your parents going to be at this banquet? Are your grandparents going to be at this banquet? Will your family be there? Make this your goal. Make this your goal. To see to it that without exception, every single one, and your family and your friends know that they've been invited to this banquet. Embrace fully what it means to live in the Great Commission, what what the Bible considers the last big teaching of Christ to his disciples, where he says, go into all the world, uh, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you even to the end of the age. And so with this being the case, rather than praying, Lord, if it's your will for me to go and Uh, share the gospel by crossing the street or going around the world, let me know. Open that door. Rather than praying this because Jesus has already said go, we should be praying, Lord, if you don't want me to go, let me know because otherwise I'm going because you've already said so. This is laying up treasures in heaven. This is embracing Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Y'all, we've got to pray for lost people. We've got to pray for the cripple who are not invited yet. We've got to pray for the poor who have not been invited to the king's city yet. They don't know. We've got to pray for the lame who aren't invited yet, the blind who are not invited yet, the Buddhist, the Hindu, the Muslim, the Sikh. They don't know that they've been invited to the this the atheist the agnostic they don't know they've been invited to this those who are caught up in cool and those who are distracted by youthful beauty they don't know that they've been invited yet your barista does not know that they've been invited yet and you don't have to go tell them bad news you don't have to go tell them they've got to work real hard and pay this amount of money and show up to this amount of stuff you get to tell them what verse 17 says come for everything is now ready But as you share the gospel with your friends, what what is the posture of your heart? Is it a proud kind of I know I'm right and I've got to convince them they're wrong? I know what that feels like. I did that. Is it judgmental? Or is it pleading? I mean, is it begging? Is it is it? thinking so little of yourself that you're okay crawling on your knees, humbly and desperately groveling, asking them to believe, pleading them to believe. Come be a part of this eternal party, this banquet. There's no strutting in sharing the gospel. There should be no swagger in sharing the gospel. A pastor in Sri Lanka, India, who died in 1970, Pastor D.T. Niles, he puts it this way. Evangelism, sharing the gospel, is simply one beggar telling another beggar where there's food. Pray for humility in your witness. Pray for obedience in your witness. Pray for courage and boldness to have a humble confidence. Humble because you know who you are. Confident because you know who God is. A humble confidence as you go talk about Jesus to other people. Pray for faith. Pray for belief. Ask God to give you the faith to believe that He can actually change the people you're praying for. You don't think He can save your family. <laughs> you think therapy will. Studying the Enneagram will help. But you will not pray about it. And you will not open your mouth and speak the good news of the gospel because you don't think it works. And that's True. But you've got to tell God that. You need to ask Him to give you courage in that, that He would give you faith. And not just dig deep because my pastors tell me to, but to hit your knees and pray, God, give me boldness. Give me faith that you exist and that you save lives because I doubt it. Stop pretending that we share the gospel. Stop pretending that you care for your friends and your family and start asking God. Daily, so many times a day. Teach me to care for my family. Teach me to care less about how I feel like I was wounded in my childhood and more about what my parents are going to do in eternity. So, we're going to end this morning in a very different way. We're going to get to communion in a moment. But first, I just want us to pray. We're going to have special prayer time in a unique way that we haven't done before. And I want to read something first. This is something I've read almost three times this summer, this book. I've read it out loud almost two times in in complete and in just a couple days to some friends. And I I don't know, I feel like the Lord is, is stirring something deep within who I am. Um, and by my connection to you as one of your pastors, I think it's going to affect you too. And so <clears throat> I don't know exactly how this applies to where we are, but it's, um, it's wonderfully hurt me, and I just want to share the wound. <laughs> You're welcome, I guess. <laughs> um, but I'm trying to process this. So I'm going I'm to read this, and then we're going to go into some prayer time. No man is greater than his prayer life. The pastor who is not praying is playing. The people who are not praying are straying. The pulpit can be a shop window to display one's talents, but the prayer closet allows no showing off. Poverty-stricken, as the church is today in many things, she's most poverty-stricken here in the place of prayer. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. We have many players and payers, but few prayers. We have many singers singers but few clingers. We have lots of pastors, but few wrestlers. We've got many fears and few tears. We've got much fashion, but little passion. Many interferers, but few intercessors. Many writers, but few fighters. And failing here in the place of prayer, we fail everywhere. You see, the two prerequisites to successful Christian living are vision and Passion both of which are born in and maintained by, the, by prayer. The, the ministry of preaching is open to a few, but the ministry of prayer, which is the highest of all human offices, are, is open to all. Spiritual adolescents and babes, they might say, I'm not going to go tonight, it's only the prayer meeting. Friends, it may be that Satan has little cause to fear most preaching. Yet past experiences sting him to rally all his infernal army to fight against God's people praying. Modern Christians know little of binding and loosening, though the onus is on us. Whatsoever ye shall bind, but have you done any of this lately? God is not prodigal with his power, but to be much for God, you must be much with God. The world today is hitting the trail for hell at a speed that makes our fastest plane look like a tortoise, yet alas... Few of us can remember the last time we missed our bed for a night of waiting upon God, asking Him to send world-shaking revival. It's because our compassions are not moved. We mistake the scaffolding for the building. Present-day preaching with its pale interpretation of divine truths causes us to mistake action for unction, commotion for creation, and rattles for revivals. The secret of praying is praying in secret. A sinning man will stop praying, and a praying man will stop sinning. We are beggared and we're bankrupt, but we're not broken nor even bent. Prayer is simply profound and profoundly simple. Prayer is the simplest form of speech that infant lips can try, yet it's so sublime and complex that it outranges all speech and exhausts man's vocabulary. A Niagara of burning words does not mean that God is impressed or even moved. One of the most profound of Old Testament prayers, intercessors, had no language. Quote, her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. End quote. No linguist here. No voice is heard. There are groanings which cannot be uttered. Are we so substandard to New Testament Christianity that we know not the historical, robust faith of our fathers, but only the fickle, hysterical faith of our fellows? Prayer is to the believer what capital is to the businessman. I mean, can any of us here deny that in the modern church organization today, the main cause of much anxiety is money? Yeah, that which tries the modern churches the most troubled the New Testament church the very least. The reason is, our accent is on paying, theirs was on praying. When we've paid, the property is taken. When they prayed, the property was shaken. You see, in the matter of New Testament, spirit-inspired, hell-shaking, world-breaking prayer never has there been so much left by so many to so few. And this kind of prayer, there is no substitute. We do it or we die. So here's what I want us to do. I want you to take some time. Daniel can come play if he wants to. I want us to... I want you to turn where you are in your seat, those who want to. I want you to come forward, down to the stage, and we'll view this as a, like a, a prayer altar, something that a lot of Baptist people in the room feel comfortable with. If you're not Baptist, you're, this is creepy. It's when they come out with snakes. Um, but it's just to, to, to get some space and some time to, to be able to focus, whether it be hitting your knees, sitting where you are, um, going to the back to pray with our prayer team, coming up, praying with me, But just to give some space, again, we don't typically do this, but I want us to have this opportunity to spend specific time in prayer because I know if we dismiss and ask you to pray later, very few will do it. But if we take time now, embracing this moment that God's given us, I believe that many of us will take this more seriously. So we want to pray for three things. The first is that God would save us and that he would give us belief and faith. Two, that he would save our coworkers, our friends, and our family. And I want you to pray them out by name. And then the third thing, I want you to pray for, for boldness in your witness courage, tenderness, and grace in your witness. So I want to give us some time to pray, and then we'll sing, and I'll conclude with a reading of a psalm. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.